Today I'll be preaching from the, um, the Epistle of Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the, than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning asking for mercy, asking for guidance, asking for the Holy Spirit to lead us and uh, soften the hearts and minds of your people so we can receive your word and apply it in our lives. I pray that as the audience uh, hear me, they would not be hearing me, but hearing the very word of God. So I pray that I would be hiding behind um, the guidance and the spirit of, of God himself this morning so that we can um, worship you in spirit and in truth. In your name we pray. Amen. Now you may be seated. The title of the sermon today is Holy Brothers Consider Christ. And you can easily put the word Christ in every title that comes out of the book of Hebrews. In fact, it's all centered around Christ himself. Um, in fact, some people say that the epistle of Hebrews is the most Old Testament, New Testament, because it really covers all the shadows that we can see and hear about in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is really the big idea of the whole book of, of Hebrews. It's about the superiority of Christ. The whole book is a sermon, basically. It is a sermon. Uh, that's why it's kind of hard to find who actually wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, but it's a sermon that is based on doctrine. And now this is probably just a quick uh, side note before I even get into the the main points of the sermon that if you see a church where there's a lot of preaching, a lot of sermons that is based on nothing doctrinal, then you are basically hearing some kind of a self-help kind of a motivational speech. If there's no doctrine that drives the preacher, that drives the pastor and people who are preaching on the, in the pulpit, then there's really, it's, a, it's an empty message. And I pray that this would be uh, what we avoid today, that we are actually basing our exhortation in every time, every time we talk about anything in the Bible that is based on doctrine, that is based on solid doctrine. And that's what the author of the book of Hebrews said. He's basically giving a piece of doctrine and then exhortation. And as you can see in the whole book, you will see a lot of doctrine initially and then small parts of exhortation. And then as you proceed from chapter 1 to chapter 13, you will see smaller doctrine and then more exhortation. But the doctrine is there, and it's very solid, and it's very foundational. So don't miss that. It's a book about transitioning from shadows 
to the reality. The shadow of Christ in the Old Testament into the very person of Jesus Christ himself. It's a book about better. Better is, word, is word, a word that's mentioned many, many times. And I, if I can add another ER to better, like better, like it's, it's really what the very heart of the epistle of Hebrews um, uh, is about. It's about a better prophet, better high priest. But also the main, another main point within the whole book of Hebrews, it's about holding on, don't go back, continue, move on in your pilgrimage in your journey to the promised land. And that's why there's a lot of parallelism between the epistle of Hebrews and what is happening in the Old Testament. Because as you all know, the entire redemptive plan is about a people that God chosen and elected and had the pleasure of electing the people of Israel to journey with him and um, toward ultimately the goal, which is the promised land, the, the land that flows milk and honey. But for us, Christians today, a church today, we don't expect a land, a physical land, but we are expecting that rest that also the book of Hebrews is about. That when we see God and we um, um, behold His glory, this is what the book of Hebrews is about. We know that every great sermon has three points, so I have four points for you guys today. I know that also Pastor Charles gave me, give us a hint. You see that sermon notes is very small, like Mahrus, just... Take your, don't, don't go over time. I'm just kidding. But it's, uh, there is um, a place in your uh, order of worship where you can take notes. I'll try to be uh, specific when I move from a point to another if you want to take notes. But I have four points for you guys today. The first one is two that unite us. Two that unite us. The second point, two offices of Christ. And the third point, Two ways Christ excels over Moses. And the fourth and last point, two manifestations of our hope. But before I move on to the first point, I want to give you an illustration of someone who drifted. We, talked, we heard last couple Sundays about drifting, that you have a goal, you have a destiny, you have a destination, but somehow because of the pressure that is... Uh, over you or uh, beseeching you, you may be tempted to drift. And the Gulf Masters, 1961, Arnold Palmer was, um, if you know the history of a golf, Arnold Palmer is one of the really all-time greats. 1961, he was doing so good. As you know, the Masters is not just one day, it's like three or four days. So he was doing very well and he's all the way to the very last uh, hole the 18th hole, and if he just do, just average, he will win, and it will be a great victory for him. And as he approached that 18th hole, because he was doing so well, and everybody said, it's his, he's going to win, it's just a matter of, of time, maybe another 10, 15 minutes he'll be holding or wearing that green, green jacket, somebody in the crowd shouted his name and said, hey, congratulations! And Arnold Palmer, who's a, an amazing professional, lost his focus that moment. Not only that, he actually went and shook hands with this guy and proceeded to start the 18th hole. And that moment, when he took his eyes off the focus, just in the last few steps before he can declare the victory, he took his eyes off the, fo- uh, off the, off the goal and, uh, and the destiny that is for him. And he knows at that moment, when I shook hands with this guy, I realized I lost. 
guess what happens? Just three more shots. The first shot, it was uh, in the sand. The next one to correct it was uh, outside the border of the green in the middle of the, between people's feet. And then the one that he just needed to do par, he double bogeyed, lost the major in 1961. And the lesson and the, 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 the take home in this one story is you can do so well for a long, long time. But in the last few steps, you can mess it up. If you take your eyes off the prize, off of this, of this focus. We know that people who uh, were held captive in Egypt, the Israelites, not every one of them who journeyed with Moses, and he was a great leader, and he led them into this uh, uh, trip toward the promised land. Not everyone who left actually ended up in the promised land. And that's really the heart of the message today. Holding on, do not drift, continue despite all the trials and difficulties and all the pressure that trying to get you distracted as a Christian to take your eyes off Jesus Christ himself. I need to talk about historical background uh, before we move on because the audience is, uh, is very important to know who the people um, who are receiving this message are. And I, I know Charles um, mentioned that, but I want to refresh your memory again. It's about Christian Jews who are Hellenistic Jews living most likely in Rome. We don't know for sure because there's a lot of people saying that they could have been also in Alexandria. It could other other place somewhere in Asia, but most likely in Rome. And we're talking about a period around the year 65 or 70 uh, AD. And does anybody know who the Roman emperor at that time? It was Nero. And Nero was a crazy, crazy guy. I know you hear a lot about how evil he is. He is absolutely evil, but there was also a lot of craziness about him. Um, I'll just give you a couple examples of how crazy he was. The guy thought that he was a great singer, and he would invite people to a concert in a big uh, auditorium, and people are not, not invited. Maybe I shouldn't say invited. They were actually mandated to attend and listen to him, not for just an hour or two, for hours upon hours upon hours. In fact, there are some report people are actually women who must sit. They were going into labor. They could not leave because they, they, they had to stay and listen to this crazy guy. That is the crazy man that God in his providence and his mercy and his sovereignty allowed to be an emperor during that time. So those people were under immense persecution. It was not yet to the point of death. It was to the point of... Um, affecting their um, jobs, their homes, their children, uh, ransacking their properties, taking away their properties, but not yet to the point of death. So those people started to think, hmm, what am I to do right now? You have two options. You, ha- you can say, you know what, I'm just going to stick to Jesus Christ. I'm going to stick to the new covenant. Or you can say, well, let me compromise here a little bit. And that's what the temptation is. And that's why the epistle of Hebrews is written for, to encourage those uh, believers, to tell them to stand your ground, stay strong, and continue to consider and focus on Christ. Um, the first point of my message is, as I mentioned, two that unite us. And as you see here in the first verse of this uh, chapter, holy brothers, let me open it again here. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling. Before we talk about the word holy brothers, I need to talk about therefore, because it's written here for a reason. 
And it's basically, again, building on the doctrine that he established in chapter 1 and 2, who Christ is, the superiority of Christ. And now because we have, I spend this time in the first two chapters, not I meaning I, but the author of the Hebrews, I, we spend this time to establish the superiority of Christ over angels, that he has um, all these manifestations of how great and superior and awesome and better he is now. Therefore, holy brothers, and you ask yourself, holy, you just told me that these people were weak, they were scared, they were tempted, they were trying to compromise or even demote the position of Christ. And that's why he talked in chapter 1 and 2 about angels, because there were all all temptations about maybe Christ is not as we thought he would be. But he calls them holy. He calls them holy. In Leviticus 11, it says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Be holy just as I am holy. And it may be difficult to understand. God is asking us to be holy just as He is His holy. I think that the best way to consider this scripture is be other. The word holy means other. Consecrated, separated, not like the world around you. And that is the calling that we have as Christians. To be unlike the world around us, but to be separated, consecrated for Him. This is one of the paradoxes of the Bible, that we are called sinners, but we are also called holy. And what do you make of that? It's, we are both. We are approach, approaching God when we sit down and, and talk about, uh, when we confess our sins, we are sinners. We still have some of the traits of the original sin as we continue to uh, walk in our pilgrimage toward the promised land, as it were. But we are also called to be holy. Um, Martin Luther coined that paradox as uh, saying simul justus yet et peccator, or simul justus et peccator, correctly, meaning simultaneously sinner, or simultaneously righteous and a sinner. Yes, we are righteous in the eyes of Christ, but we're also sinners. And then he says, holy brothers. And brothers is... um, the way to think about this and also look at it, you see here in Mark 3, 34 and 35, it says, those who do my will are my mother and my brothers. And this is a statement or a declaration from Christ, actually a teenager Christ. He was still young when, he was, when he, his uh, parents left him in the temple and he was arguing and debating uh, those uh, uh, teachers. Um, they went to pick him up and like, aren't you supposed to be with your mother and, and your brothers? And he said, these are my brother and my mother. So, Christian, you need to understand that you do have brothers everywhere. Not just here in this church, but you have brothers all over the world. All Christians who are are professing Christians that believe in Christ, that hold tight to the gospel. They are your brothers and your sisters. You have brothers and sisters whether you like it or not. I hope you like it. I hope you cherish that. But you do have brothers and sisters today. Depending on the time zone, they are worshiping the Lord. Maybe in countries that you haven't heard about, in, the, in Manila, in the Philippines, or somewhere in Canada, or somewhere in Africa. In fact, you have brothers and sisters in Mecca, the very center of Islam, where persecution is at the highest. Speaking of persecution and difficulties, you have Christians right now in underground churches in Saudi Arabia. Salvation may be individual. When God works in the heart of Charles or Mahrus, 
He does that individually, but he doesn't end there and now Charles becomes an island unto himself, but he is part of the family, immediately part of this family. In fact, we have a brother who is, doesn't, uh, he's not embarrassed, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers, and that is Christ himself, like I mentioned before. Romans 8, 29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and he doesn't stop there, that he, meaning Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. It is delightful, it is encouraging, it is comforting to know that you are not alone in your Christian walk, that you have brothers and sisters all over the world. Another paradox. Your, Christ is your brother, but he's your king, and he's your savior, and he's the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, heavenly calling. Holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. And that calling, if you look at the Greek word, is actually kind of a bi-directional way. It's a calling from heaven. That's why it's called heavenly calling. But it's also a calling for you and I to heaven as a destination, as a goal for us. So a calling is an effective summons to salvation. An effective summons to salvation. Again, Romans 8, um, which is uh, Romans 8, 29 and 30, which is called the Ordo Salutis, which is the order of salvation. Very strong statement here that argues against uh, that it's all about man's choice, whether he will open his heart to Jesus Christ or not, whether it's just up to you and God did the 99% and it's up to you, Mahrus, to make that extra 1% to make it complete. And I hope you don't mess it up. That is not what the Bible teaches. Maybe some verses can be taken out of context and can give you that wrong um, theology about calling. But calling is a summons. I'm, you're being summoned to salvation. Amen. Romans 8, 29 uh, and 30. Whom he foreknew and foreknowing is uh, not just like a new from, before, new from before, but it's actually a lot deeper than that. It means that I have set my love on you from before, before the creation of this universe that you, as you see it right now, before anything is, has been founded, God knew you individually. And I can call names and say he foreknew you, not just by knowing, but actually setting his love on you. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, what did he do? He also called. That is the heavenly calling. And those whom he called... He didn't stop there. He justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is the completion and consummation of the journey and the pilgrimage that we have is the glorification that we all um, are yearning for. The second point is two offices of Jesus Christ. As you see here, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, And that's really the main thrust of my message today, to consider Jesus as the apostle and the high priest. But let's talk about the word consider here, because it's the same word that Jesus Christ himself said um, when he said consider the lilies and uh, birds. When he was talking about um, in the sermon, the sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, uh, addressing an audience about anxiety and worries. And he said... Pay close attention 
to the lilies. Pay close attention to the birds and see if they actually uh, earn it themselves or your heavenly father takes care of them. So the same word, it's consider. It is to con- contemplate, to meditate, to set your mind diligently on for the purpose of marking and considering and understanding and perceiving. Let me repeat that again. Because when we tell people, just consider Christ, consider Jesus, they take it half-heartedly at best. And they may not think it takes a lot of diligence and work and depth. It's to contemplate, to meditate, to set your mind diligently in order to understand and perceive and mark. So consider Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, church, this morning to consider Christ. Just like our brothers and sisters during that time, many, many years ago, were asked and exhorted to consider Christ in the midst of trial and temptation and um, their, the, the arrows of the enemy is trying to shoot at them to tell them, just go ahead and demote Christ just a little bit. He's a great prophet, but to compromise, let's not uh, risk, uh, risk uh, losing our children. Maybe they're, now there may be Nero, he, he didn't start yet the persecution, but ultimately he did. In fact, he used some Christians, uh, torched them alive, burned them alive in his garden to just as a light source for him. That's how terrible the situation that is happening. It wasn't just yet at that particular moment, uh, but that exact time frame was not very easy to delineate. But they, these guys were facing a lot of trials and temptation to demote Christ. And he's telling them to consider Christ. So for them and for us to consider Christ, it doesn't mean that you just gaze by and move on. It's actually to stop and pause and consider Him. Not temporarily, but permanently. Not occasionally, but permanently. Not superficially, but actually deeply as well. This is the message of this paragraph, to consider Jesus Christ. I know you may, and, and some people may say that, well, the persecution of the Christians in that time and, and some other areas such as what I mentioned in Saudi Arabia, we're not facing persecution here in America. By God's grace, we are not to that level. That's, this is my opinion. This is, kind of, this is outside of the Bible, so I can give you my opinion right now. I believe we do have persecution in America. I'm shocked to uh, have discovered that coming from Egypt and thinking this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. And then all of a sudden, uh, in your workplace, if you uh, openly speak your mind about certain social issues, you will be ostracized, you may be demoted, you may be passed on for a promotion. If you, have, if you are a baker and have a baker and making cakes for people and, and a gay couple to come to your place and asking for a cake and you refuse, well, it happened. I'm not making that up. That's happened many, a few years ago. And that person had to suffer a lot of difficulties and adversity and, 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 and financial costs and all that. So, yes, there are persecutions in America. Absolutely. I, don't, I do not. In fact, it's getting more fierce. Uh, having lived here for 20 plus years. Uh, but it's not to the point of death. Will, they, will it be? I don't know. I don't know what the future will have for us. But... The cure for that, or the first order of business, when you are facing these difficult times, is to consider Christ. Why do we consider Christ? Because He is the heir, He is the creator, 
He is the radiance of the glory of God. Isn't that enough to consider Christ? Isn't that enough that in Him you have all your sufficiency? I would go there first. I would go there second and last. We are tempted often to find out other solutions before we move on to um, Christ as the only consideration. Consider Christ because the alternative is quite bluntly pathetic. The alternative that the world offers to us as Christians is not good. The, the, the world will offer you pseudo peace, a false peace, a false sense of security, false sense of comfort, false sense of joy and pleasure. Um, in Jeremiah 2, 13, it says, My people have committed two sins. Very foundational uh, scripture here, I think, to explain uh, what we are always tempted to do during uh, difficult times. My people have committed two sins. What are these two sins, according to Jeremiah? They have forsaken the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns. It's not great cisterns. It's actually broken cisterns. It's a, a, a well that is supposed to hold some water, let alone a living water, but it's, but it's not even able to hold this water because they are broken, they are fractured. That's what the world offers. Give you this false sense of, go ahead and try that. Go ahead and, and embrace this worldview because the one that you're embracing is old-fashioned, it's uh, bigoted, it's narrow-minded, and go ahead and or, uh, adhere to the worldview uh, views. But we know that we are not to do that. Consider Christ because there is victory in gazing at Christ and there is defeat in turning away from Christ. And there are so many examples in the Bible about, about that. Uh, we read, I believe today, in John 3 and in Numbers, it talks about just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent and whoever gazed at this bronze serpent was, was saved. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He was lifted up for our sin. And whoever will gaze at him, will focus his attention on him, on him only, will have that salvation. That's the eternal salvation. Consider Christ because of his great I am's. Jesus Christ himself said that he is the bread of life. What else do you need? He said he is the light of the world. He said that he is the door. He is the good shepherd. He is the resurrection. Jesus said that he is the life and he is the vine and we are his branches. But also consider him when he said that I am the way, not a way, the way, the truth and the life. There are seven I am's in the Bible and those alone, if you meditate on them and if you consider intently them, I don't know what else do you need beyond that. Even in the midst of the trials and tribulation and the persecution. Another eighth I am that some people may not call it I am because the I am of it at the very end of the sentence because all the other sevens, it says I am, I am, I am. But here in John 8 verse 58, when he says before Abraham, I am. Not before Abraham, I was or not before Abraham, I happened to be, but before Abraham, I am. This is the Christ that we are called on by the, the preacher in the epistle of Hebrews 
to adhere to. The world will not give you the answer. It's, I find it ironic that some of the most uh, famous comedians in this country um, are having a miserable life. Um, if you know Robin Williams is a great comedian. He was, I, I, I mean, I still like some of his movies. He is a very talented comedian that made millions laugh for probably decades. And he ended up feeling so empty that he committed suicide. And that's just an example. I can actually go on and on. We can talk for days about those empty cisterns that the world keep pointing to that maybe that's the way. Maybe that's how you should live. Maybe that's how you should just move your eyes off Christ. And he says he's our apostle and he's our high priest. Our apostle meaning the sent one. He is sent from God. He is the envoy. He is the messenger. He comes with an authority and rights and power of the sender. In John 5, and I would like to read this uh, to you. John 5, verses 36 through 38. If you have your Bibles, you can open to John 5, 36 to 38. But the testimony that I have, that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Clearly, he is our apostle. He's not an apostle of a season, but he is our apostle, period. Unlike Moses, when he had a, a certain time frame where he was the apostle on behalf of the people of Israel. He's also our high priest. A high priest um, who is himself the sacrifice. In the Old Testament, we had the high priest who always, always had to go into the Holy of Holies, never, ever empty-handed. They had to come bring some animal, some sacrifice, some bloodshedding that need to occur for um, the, that high priestly office to be fulfilled or actually executed. His job is to stand in the gap between you, a sinner, and a holy God. And he had to bring that sacrifice. Jesus Christ is our high priest. But he's not a high priest on the order of Aaron and the other Levites. But he is the high priest because he himself was the sacrifice. He himself who walked into the Holy of Holies without anything but himself as our sacrifice. Isaiah 53 said that he surely he had borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He talks a lot in the book of Hebrews about the sympathy. The high priest in the Old Testament, they, could, they actually did sympathize with the rest of the average Israelites because of one thing. They also were sinners. They also sinned. So they understand the need for a sacrifice because they also have sinned. Our high priest, our great high priest also can sympathize with us. He did, and he 
continues and he will continue to sympathize for his people, for his church, not because he was a sinner, because he was sinless. Christ was sinless. But the very reason he is able to sympathize with me and you, because he was also tempted, just like you and me. Because he was also tempted and came out victorious, he can sympathize with you and I as high priest. I'm not going to talk more about the high priest because there's so much more. There will be a lot of other chapters dedicated to the high priestly office of Christ. But I will kind of throw something in your mind right now to think about it and maybe study it before Charles preach on it. Um, we know that in the Old Testament, only people from certain tribe are allowed to be high priest. And what tribe is that? I mentioned that. Levi's. And what tribe is Jesus from? Judah. How come? Did, did we have an exception here? Was there an exception in the Bible that's, well, he is Jesus, even though he's not from the tribe of Levi, but he is our high priest? I want you to think about that and uh, be prepared when Charles teaches and preaches about this. And also he says here, uh, the high priest of our confession. Our confession, which means this which we have known that we have accepted, that we have believed and experienced and tasted. This is the faith that these people have already believed. They have already put their trust in the Lord. They have already embraced the gospel and confessed the gospel. Just like we had our confession earlier, we confess because we believe this to be true. There is nothing that has happened in the past or will happen in the future to make this different or not true or compromise. So he's reminding them, here is Christ, consider him, and consider him only because he is your apostle and he is the high priest. John Piper, in, that, uh, in one of his sermons, he said, every man has two deep or uh, foundational needs, a word from God and a way to God. And in this very verse, it actually satisfies that. Your Lord, Jesus Christ, satisfies that and beyond. He is a word from God. He is the very word of God because he is our apostle. And he is the way to God because he is our high priest that stand in the gap. The third point is two points that Jesus excels over Moses. And again, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about this because I believe the main bulk of this message was really about considering Christ. And uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this because again, there's a lot of... Um, several um, comparison between Jesus and other figures within the rest of the epistle of Hebrews, but he is more excellent than Moses. And the question is, why did the writer of the epistle of Hebrews just singled out Moses? There was other great Old Testament figures. To the Hebrews, up to this day, Moses is in a league of his own. In fact, uh, Paul, he actually equates the law under his name, he basically said, it's the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. So he is esteemed very highly by the Jewish people. So that the, the argument that the writer is trying to do now, or try to make right now is, if Jesus, that I'm telling you about to consider, is greater than Moses, it settles the matter. Just like if you, um, if you have a team here in this town and you go to a different town and you want to compete with them, you just try to figure out who's their MVP, who's their best guy. And if we have someone who can take this guy down, I think we can win this game. 
we will win this game. And that's what the argument is basically based off of. Moses, let me tell you how much, much greater Jesus Christ is compared to Moses. Moses was faithful, was very faithful in all of God's house. Yes, he is a faithful person. He was a servant in God's house. But Jesus Christ was the builder of the house. So that's the very first one uh, point of why Jesus excels over Moses. You have a, a servant in a house and you have a builder of a house. Which one would you want to follow? The answer is very obvious, but it had to be reiterated and being reminded again that you don't want to follow a servant of the house no matter how faithful he was. In fact, Moses, as I said, he, he was faithful. We have read a few uh, Sundays ago about uh, the word of God saying that not so with my servant Moses because I speak to him mouth to mouth. There is no other mediator between me and Moses. We, he is very faithful. I speak to him mouth to mouth. The second point that Jesus excels over Moses in is that um, well, I actually made a mistake the first point. The first point is a son versus servant. So Moses was the servant and Jesus was the son. So um, the son of the house, he has the legal authority to be the owner of that house. So we are to follow the son, not to follow the servant, no matter how faithful he is. The second point is that a house and a builder of the house. Moses was part of that house. We are the part, part of God's house. We are his house. It's not a physical house. It's a metaphor always when we talk about the house of God. It's always a metaphor to the church, the body of believers. That's you and I that are forming the house of God. In 1 Timothy 3.15 it says, If I delay, that's Paul talking, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of living God. So Jesus is um, not just a mere part of the house, but he actually is the builder of the house. So we are his house. We are the church. That's the house. We are the elect, the persevered. We are the people who are saved by him. And we are promised um, the eternal glory that the Bible talks about, like I mentioned in Romans 8. The last point And I'll close here in verse 6. It says, If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Those are two manifestations of our hope. Now that you have covered that the gazing on Christ, that fixating on Him as the answer and the only answer to life's most troubling uh, dilemmas and, and questions. Now, if you hold fast to that, your hope will lead to two results, two manifestations in your life. That is confidence and boasting. Boasting here doesn't mean that being prideful, but it actually entails meaning glorying and rejoicing in being, um, in having this hope anchored in Christ himself. Uh, John Calvin says, um, hope here is really nothing more than the constancy of faith. So believing Christ and continue to believe in Christ, and continue to walk in Him, and continue to abide in Him, that is your hope. That is your hope. So despite the arrows of the enemies, we are to persevere as the saints. Despite the arrows of the enemies, we are to persevere 
as God sees. And, and some people also, again, uh, I don't want to go into a lot of theological debatable points, but some will look at this, says the word if, well, the perseverance of the saints may be in question here. Maybe if you can, you can be born again and then you lose your salvation at some point. This is not what it's, it says here. If at some point you started your journey and at, at somehow during the middle of the, that journey you have drifted and drifted far away, you're not, your faith was not genuine from the very beginning. If you have a saving faith given to you by Jesus Christ, He is faithful that He will continue with you until, until the completion. So a saving faith has to be faith that saves. Not just like Arnold Palmer where he, he was just almost there and he lost it at the very end. It's very important that we understand this and we do not misinterpret this as somehow... Uh, you can be one of God's elect and you are saved, but somehow you can mess it up on your own. And I'll close with this. Um, when one of the uh, famous um, athletes uh, was actually legally blind, her name is Marla Runyon, um, in 1996. So this woman had, um, she was blind when, since she was nine years old. She had um, child onset or juvenile onset macular degeneration. So her vision was very, very weak and legally blind. She could see just blurs and maybe see kind of lines, but nothing more substantial than that. And she chose to, she liked sport and she wanted to continue sport. And what did she choose? She chose track and field, running. Um, she actually competed to the highest or the most difficult levels to the Olympics. She actually went to Sydney in 2000. Uh, she didn't win any medals, but she actually, for the fact, for a blind woman to make it all the way to the Olympics is something to behold or to be held. And when she was asked, what is it? What is it that you have done? How can you actually compete and reach all the way to that strong professional level? And, and isn't, isn't your blindness a, uh, uh, a hindrance to, to you? And her answer was really amazing because she said, in fact, actually one of my strengths, because it blinds everything around me and makes me singularly focused on the goal, singularly focused on the prize. As a Christian, every time you give in to some of the temptations of the enemy, some of the difficulties around you, and you take your eyes off Christ, you know it. You know it that you, you need to re, uh, recenter your mind and your heart again. Um, in a country in Africa named Zimbabwe, one, there, was, there was some persecution as well there uh, many years ago, I believe. And one of their pastors um, wrote a statement that was, uh, it became public, and it's, you can see it online, uh, but it was only found after he was murdered, after he died, for the sake of the gospel. And um, it talks about how focused this man was, how, how focused this pastor was, despite all the difficulties around him. And he said, um, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, 
sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, and tamed visions, and worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence. I no longer need prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I do not have to be right, first, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean in His presence, walk by patience. I am uplifted by prayer, and I labor with power. My face, my face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions are few, my guide reliable, my mission clear, I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till He comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, work till He stops me. And when He comes for His own, He will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, I pray that You would help us fix our eyes on You, our Apostle, our High Priest, our all in all. In your name we pray. Amen.